Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Welcome to Book Talk, your weekly podcast book club. This is the last episode about All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thanka Matthews. And we are going to interview the author, Sarah, in about 10-ish minutes. If you don't want to hear the end of the book or what we thought about this last section, check the show notes for the timestamp. Otherwise, Katie is about to spoil the very end of this book for you. In this last section, Marina and Sneha have a huge falling out after Marina's birthday party. Marina ends up cutting her finger, and Sneha calls her mom instinctually obviously leading to the fact that Marina finds out her mom is in fact alive and well and not dead. After a huge fight about this and about trust, they break up and Sneha decides to accept a new job where she'll have to move to DC. Her mom flies over to help her move and pack up everything. Sneha makes out, makes up with Marina and then makes out with Marina in front of her mom, effectively coming out to her. She's emotional about leaving, emotional about her friends, emotional about her life and decides she can't in fact leave Marina and they decide to try to do long distance. The second half of this section flashes forward to Sneha's new life in D.C. and her coming back to Eminemit's wedding. She gets to stay at Ryan, which is the pink house in real life. And we find out that Tig is an internet celebrity and everyone seems to be doing okay living in this community setting. On the way to Eminemit's wedding, Tig gets pulled over. It's traumatic and sad and awful, but they make it to the wedding eventually, only to have Marina call Sneha and tell her that she is, one, dying of, I think, jaundice or cancer, and two, she's happily getting married, which is a lot for Sneha to comprehend. She is distraught, and the book ends with her finally reaching out to the people who love her for help, and Tom comes upstairs to make sure she's okay. Katie, would you consider this an open ending or a closed ending by Katie standards? By my standards, I think this is a closed ending. I don't think I need to know every single thing that happens in all these characters' lives, but I think a lot of big things are resolved. Sneha does find another job, so one of the big points of tension is her unemployment and her awful boss. She's doing something in D.C. Another big point of contention is Marina. That's resolved, you know, not for better, but it is resolved in a way that allows them both to move on. And this idea of the pink house of this community living, it is happening. Now, whether it will last or whether it is for the greater good, we can debate. But I think really it does leave us in a good place where we can imagine what happens next to these characters. And I think she does. It is kind of a prescriptive ending in my in my eyes. What did you think of it? Too much of a closed ending? I don't think it was too much of a closed ending. I am sort of surprised that we jump forward in time and have the experience of Sneha coming back to the town to sort of see what's happened since she's been gone. And then we kind of get caught up on what happened in between. Uh, I do think that's a very poetic way to end that we sort of have all of these various storylines tied up at least for now it definitely opens the door for like a future book to follow up on now what does she do in dc where she's had to create this new life where she doesn't have the support system right there with her that she's come to rely on and when she's really evolved and become more of an open person so i don't know i think i liked it i think it was resolved enough yeah I think it was almost necessary to flash forward because Sneha's in such a chaotic phase of her life during this book. She's 23. Literally nothing is going according to plan. Nothing is working out in her favor. And I think as a reader, like we needed to see that she was going to be okay and that 
life was going to work out in some way. Maybe it isn't how she pictured it, but it is okay. And, you know, it does keep moving forward. And for her to be able to come back and see how things have changed, I think showed how much she has grown and who she is now. And her and Marina's love story had a very typical evolution from infatuation to, you know, early fights. Then they're sort of figured out and realize what they mean to each other. And then in the very unsexy, very realistic way, realize that long term they're not compatible and they have these kind of irreparable issues that they can't get past. So it makes sense, but also it's like we don't need to go on the whole journey through their relationship. It's sort of fine to just like plop in at the end and be like, yeah, it kind of would have never worked, but at least they gave it a good shot. Both of these really important people in Sneha's life kind of have two very different trajectories. So Marina's was very chaotic. Like I just am like, holy shit, what happened to this girl multiple times? But Tig seems to have kind of found themselves a little bit more and seems to kind of be coming into themselves. What did you think of Marina's journey and of Tig's journey? There were so there's so much plot in this book that we literally forgot to talk about the plot of Tig coming out as non-binary, which happened last would have happened in last week's episode. Tig is non-binary, uses they them pronouns. They've also become now an internet celebrity. They're a visionary. They've created this pink house from an idea into an actuality. They're partnered long-term with Diana. I feel like we always knew that Tig was the real one, that they were going to pull it all together and pull everyone along with them. And that's clearly what has happened. So I feel like I know Tig very well. We've seen them grow and I love it. And that storyline for me feels like very nicely packaged, even the reality that Tig experiences being perceived as a black woman by the police officers. Um, that interaction was very painful, but obviously part of her story and part of or part of their story and what they experienced. Before um, we go on to Marina, I want to just comment on the Tig storyline yeah. as well. I do want to talk about that police at some point. I want to talk about these side stories and how it felt kind of like some of them were a little bit thrown in there, like this part when Tig is pulled over by the police with fireworks in the car. Um, but I do love that they are an internet celebrity now and have finally found a way. They had all these visionary ideas and they wanted to be able to communicate them, but, you know, had struggled with reading and how to kind of get their voice out there. And I love the use of social media in this way for, cause it's really accessible for people to be able to speak to a large audience. Um, I'm assuming it's gonna be stressful to be one of their friends, knowing that you could constantly put on blast at anything that you say, but I do love that they've kind of come into their own and have found this outlet and this really healthy partnership with somebody who clearly appreciates them too. Yeah, we love Tig. Now, Marina. <laughs> I feel about Marina the way I feel about Tom, which is Sneha obviously loves these people. They obviously mean a lot to her. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know if I understand Tom or Marina that well. I don't really know what's going on in their lives. They feel more than a supporting character yet simultaneously less than a supporting character like I don't know very much about them other than Marina good dancer weird hair color possibly alcoholic yeah I feel like they do feel important to the story but they're very undeveloped as side characters I feel like we know a lot more about Tig and even about like her parents and their you know innermost motivations and where they're from 
than we truly know about Tom and Marina. Tom and Marina have really strong opinions and they have strong influence in Sneha's life, but it's hard for me to discern like why. And also I feel like there must have been some journey that, you know, her and Tom went on too that we don't see where he's kind of an asshole in the beginning of the book and they're not really friends. And then at the end, he's the one who comes up. They're still really good friends. He's not kicked out of this group. And so it just feels a little bit like they are underdeveloped. And Marina's story took like, I think a pretty hard left turn at the end here. And while I feel like she was a little bit chaotic, I did not feel like she was going to fall this far. And I don't know that there were any hints that that was what was going to happen. And not that it can't happen to anybody because it can, but I just, it felt a little bit dramatic to me. The last section of this book, a lot happens, a lot of plot, but there's also a lot of, I think, good take-home messages. So do you want to talk a little bit about what you kind of got from this last section or from the book as a whole or what it made you think a little bit deeper about? This book is definitely really atmospheric. I think she delivers on a lot of scenes that convey a very specific feeling. Like when you have a really close group of friends and you move away and then you come back to visit, it's very bittersweet. And it's you miss so much of what they're going through. And it's also like a special occasion, but it's sad, but it's exciting. But you feel like this isn't your place anymore. Um, similarly like her visiting home where her parents are and not quite fitting in not knowing how to kind of go between those two different cultural experiences so I think the book did a good job of putting us in specific times I definitely felt like oh this is 2008 or 9 the one thing I think the book the message of the book in my view is about this sense of how much we all need each other and the type of intimacy that you have in close friends that is sometimes even more important than romantic relationships. So the last section of the book or the last couple of sentences that I wanted to read, I think like bring this all home, which is Sneha is in the bathroom. She's going through this really difficult emotional time and she texts her friends and Tom is the one who sees the message. And she says, Somewhere from a distant planet, I can reconnect the words he's muttering to meaning. You always have me, Sneha. You will always have us. It is then that I see it flicker before me like a promise, the empty room full of light. This is my tragedy and my great good fortune, to be the recipient of this bond, to be kept alive under its crushing warmth and weight, to be given it so freely, so much more than I've ever deserved. The world has ended a thousand times, and my name called in each new book of it. Oh. <laughs> so sweet. I think this was a really powerful note to end on. And I loved the entire message of this book about how important it is to have people in your life who kind of will not let you fall and how important that sense of community and friendship and deep support truly is. And I think that a lot of what she's discussing throughout this book is like, what does that support mean? And what does it look like? And where can you find it? And what does home mean? What does community mean? Which I think is an important conversation to be having and a sweet message. All right. Well, after the break, we're going to talk to Sarah about her thoughts about this book. Then next week, we're going to have a special episode. We're going to be talking about one of our mutually favorite books of this past year, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. The week after that, we're going to start reading our next book club read, Lessons in Chemistry. So if you haven't gotten your copy, pick it up from a local bookstore or bookshop.org and check our Instagram page for the schedule at booktalk underscore podcast. We'll see you next week.
you every time, Katie. They're going to see us in like 30 God. seconds. We'll see you in 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> hey, everyone. I'm Sarah Thungam Matthews, and I wrote um, All This Could Be Different. It's my first novel, and I'm so hyped and touched to be on here talking about it and that all of you are reading. Um, a little bit about me. I'm an immigrant. I grew up in the Middle East. I'm um, Indian originally. And um, I came to the U.S. in my late teens. And um, a lot of my writing has to do with migration and power and community slash friendship. And, um, yeah, w- you know, what it means to be a self moving through the world. So our main character in the book, Sneha, is coming to terms with who she is, but it takes her really most of the book to get there. She's constantly hiding parts of herself and lying about other parts to people that she really cares about. Why do you think it was so hard for her to let people in, even letting people in who she desperately wants to be close with? And why is it such an important part of growing up to develop this vulnerability, this ability to let people get close to you? I think that's a really interesting question. I think that, you know, the first thing I'll say is I don't think that any like author knows more than the reader about any like characterological questions. The way I really approach my writing is the book is out in the world and it's there for readers to make their own meaning with. But a lot of how I think about that question really is that Sneha is a full person in the world. You know, I think that one, and she has her own, Um, sometimes painful um, and sometimes just like factual history. There is um, definitely a backstory of abuse in her personal history, but it's not, to me, it's not this one-to-one thing either where she, um, where she's like, oh, I'm this way and I'm, you know, I'm kind of avoidant and kind of prickly and find it hard to open up because of my history of abuse. I think that's a small, that's a part of it. But I think equally a part of it is that Sneha in various ways has like real investments in masculinity, Um, not necessarily in her presentation, but certainly in her like emotional affect and way of relating to the world. And a lot of that is probably picked up from the model she had around her. But basically, you know, like I want everyone to think about themselves. Why are you the way you are? And there's no one answer, right? It's like a whole lifetime's worth of personal history that like trails behind each of us and is like constantly informing the present moment. That's really beautiful. I, in grad school, like study this story of the self that we create. And a lot of my experimentation um, research is about trying to unpack that puzzle. So it's fun to think about coming at it from a fictional, from a storytelling perspective, from experiencing a character and sort of asking similar questions of, you know, why is she the way she is? Well, for a lot of reasons, you know. Yeah. So I love that. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to not be reductive um, with ourselves. You know, I think that's a big part of what the book, um, the book argues for. Um, And, you know, I think Katie asked, why is it such an important part of growing up to develop this vulnerability? So much of what this book is interested in, ultimately, when you get to its closing pages, I think, is like, how can we make a world that we want to live in? That's a a world that serves us. And I think that 
part of the building blocks of getting there is to develop an honesty. Um, a lot of people talk about community as a sort of like panacea, you know, as it's like, like through a lot of platitudes without ever engaging with what community is. I think there are many moving parts of that. I'm happy to talk about it. But one thing I'll say is essential for community is the ability of people within within that group, within that community to speak with each other honestly. And a lot, the book does try in some ways to model that, to show one character who's very disadvantaged in some ways um, when it comes to being honest and being vulnerable and to watch her take that journey of learning to be in authentic community with people. Speaking of that, Sneha has moments where she, quote, messes up or says things that are non-PC or things that wouldn't be acceptable in 2022. For example, she's pretty dismissive when she first hears about people who identify as non-binary and use they, them pronouns. Um, she also almost immediately writes Tig off as a potential romantic interest based almost exclusively on the way Tig looks and her social identity. Um, why is it important to show this imperfect side of a largely progressive character? Mm. Yeah, I mean, many pieces, right? I think that there are ways in which this novel, like I wanted to write a novel that felt like quietly um, anti-carceral. I think it really believes in second chances and third chances and fourth chances for all the characters. Um, I think it's really interesting, you know, the ways in which present day readers, I think, are really focused on um, what they see as this like social and moral faux pas um, from this, um, you know, let's call a spade a spade, like a like recent immigrant woman living in the Midwest who is like not chronically online in 2013. And it, there are so many like context-based reasons for her to have the reaction she does. I think later also, you know, some of my trans friends have read the book and been like, wow, like Sneha, definite, definite potential egg there. Like someone who, you know, has not yet um, maybe gone on her, you know, potential gender journey. Because, um, you know, there, there are all these ways in which gender is fraught for her. But mostly I just find it really interesting, you know, the ways in which we frame morality as individual um, in, in these sorts of contexts. Like I have heard, you know, at, you know, like truly like over a thousand, you know, data points around this like one conversation in the book. And in many ways, I'm like, okay, it's being read the way I want it to be read, which is, you know, to show to show evidence of growth in all people, which is part of what the novel argues. But I think it's it's been so noted that I almost want to push back a little bit and say, for example, you know, no one see so in the in the conversation comes to mind, right? Like Sneha's talking to Amit. Amit is talking about his crush on um M, who's non-binary. Sneha's just frankly not very familiar with it and has sort of an immediate, you know, gut, like stomach level pushback against it. Um, and she sees it as sort of elitist, you know, which I think she's responding to something, you know, beyond just the concept of being non-binary. She's responding to Amit's like wealthy tech world um, and the picture he's sh he's showing her. But I think there's also this interesting passage, right, where we don't really hold 
um, like no reader has that I've heard of has held Amit accountable for the lack of persuasion, the lack of, um, you know, that's it's truly a teachable moment for him where he could be like, you know, he's someone who, you know, has money and, you know, is quote unquote more enlightened. He could be like, you know, this is how I think about it. But instead he sort of shrinks away. Um, it's almost like he doesn't want to com- contaminate himself, um, you know, uh, with engaging with his friend and he, because he still wants to keep her in his life and not, you know, dismiss her. He just kind of glosses over the moment. This isn't how we build persuasive coalitions. This isn't how we broaden a tent. So I'm just, I'm pushing that out. There's like, just complicate the narrative. I think that a lot of how I approach politics is like big tent politics. In a lot of my organizing, I talk to people who are long-term residents, like, 20 or 30 years more um, of the historically black neighborhood I live in. And they are mystified at best when it comes to like a lot of 2022 based ideas around gender theory. And so I often want to ask young readers who like some of whom are not really engaging with people outside of their particular sphere, what, what, what they would like to do. Um, with, you know, my long-term neighbor who's like been, you know, on my block for 32 years and who believes that there are two genders, men and women. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, such a good point. And it's, it's also, if you actually listen to what she says, she's like, don't we all do this? Don't we all have like confusion about our gender? And that is also a teachable moment to be like, what do you mean? I mean, and that and that's what comes to mind. It's like so it's so perfectly set up for Amit to be like, hey, this would actually it sounds like it was actually help you. You know, this would actually serve you. But like, you know, there and there, but instead, because again, like, you know, we're increasingly living in a, a zeitgeist where like a certain kind of like politics and morality are seen as like wholly individualized wholly atomized and like all like it's all connected to our personal brands almost as opposed to like you know any notion of like collective liberation um so yeah <laughs> yeah I, I wanted i wanted it to feel like something i think i also wanted it to feel like something that the reader could have an emotional reaction to you know um and not not sort of play it safe Sneha's relationship with her parents is complicated. She loves them deeply, but she also feels indebted to them. She struggles with balancing her love for them with the fact that she is hiding who she is and her day-to-day life, her identity, really from her parents. At the same time, she's hiding her parents from her friends in order to kind of hold up what she sees as her end of the bargain, what they gave to her and now what she owes to them. In what ways is this dynamic generalizable to all parental relationships? And how do you think this is specific to Sneha's situation or her life? You know, I have no ability to generalize to all parental relationships. I do think that there's, um, you know, something that exists across culture, um, not universally, but certainly um, powerfully present, whether it's South Asian culture or WASP culture or, you know, like the the anecdotes that I've heard from some of my friends who, for example, were like raised by like, you know, like Nigerian immigrant parents um, that has to do with this idea that the child is the owner, like under ownership of 
um, of parents in some way and represents their best investment for the future. Um, I think that's a pretty cross-culturally powerful idea. Um, I think in Sneha's particularly particular situation, you know, she just is really trapped by love. Um, I think that within her family unit is where she's experienced like deep love and deep betrayal. Um, I think that there's the betrayal that she feels that wasn't even necessarily her parents' fault, but um, tied to what happened, um, you know, with with her parents' criminalization and deportation, which I think really has left this very deep wound in her. And I think that there's her parents subscribe to homophobic views, and um, certainly, um, you know, part of how they dream of future for her and sort of see their investment investment paying off um, is for her to end up successful financially and married, you know, to a man, regardless of whether there's like love or desire there. So I think that that's the bind that she finds herself in, you know, I think that a lot of the and I wanted to live in the tension of that. I think a lot of the um, what I didn't want to do was necessarily start with a protagonist who was like, yes, my parents want all these things and that's bullshit and I'm not going to do it. Um, I kind of wanted for us to really feel her conflict and feel the ways in which she's like pulled in two completely opposing directions. So I loved this blue green metaphor that we keep going back to. Are they different colors? It depends on who's looking, how we're perceiving it. I just thought that metaphor was so powerful. Where did you come up with this metaphor and what does it mean to you? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. Um, you know, a large part of my own life has felt, um, I mean, it's been really shaped by migration. You know, I like when I was a toddler, my family, my nuclear family moved from India to Oman. And then I grew up in that very specific culture with its very specific norms. Um, and then, you know, in my late teens, we immigrated to North America and it was like truly like a different world. Um, and so, yeah, I think that a lot of how a lot of my emotional struggle when I was younger came from this feeling that I was constantly translating meaning, you know, and like, like certain, certain things like, you know, so I like snuck around a little bit in high school, um, you know, and I um, did various things and I was I remember going to prom in ways that involved some sneaking around and just feeling very conscious you know of the like of the doubleness of my actions like what would be seen as like freedom and almost a certain kind of feminism um, at play in my actions um, in a western context and what would be seen as like true and deep like betrayal um, and disrespect simultaneously and this is just something I've just been preoccupied with for a long time and I felt um concerned for want of a better word for how to write a queer coming of age novel that didn't only give itself over to sort of like western norms where you know you have ignorant parents and this young person striking out for freedom and like gay people are perfectly good with no caveats you know and no texture and I think that seeding that blue-green metaphor, I think, was my in 
my concession and my offering to the reader to try to um, remember the different worlds that this protagonist is coming from and like the heart of her very real struggle um, that, you know, to remember that um, the center of the world is not America for everybody or American norms. All right, switching topics here. There are kind of a lot of tricky financial situations throughout the book. So including Amit supporting KJ and Sneha giving to Tig even when she herself is really struggling. I read that you founded Bedside Strong during the pandemic, which I think is a mutual aid organization. So I would love to hear your thoughts about taking care of our communities, when and where systems fail us, and about how and why it's crucial to not only develop but participate in mutual aid networks and kind of what can we learn from doing so. Yeah. Um, I'll say a little bit about Bedside Strong just to, um, you know, elucidate that and then I'll answer your question. Um, Bedside Strong was a mutual aid aid network that I founded but like absolutely cannot take credit for um, because it is a work of like so many hundreds of people. Um, It started in 2020 and in and a lot of what we focused on um, was uh, food security um, and just like material support of different kinds. Um, in central Brooklyn um, during the first two years of the pandemic. Um, and to give some sense of a lot of the work, you know, ended up being redistributive. So we raised um, $1.3 million um, and redistributed it into the community. The average, you know, um, um, amount that was donated was like $60 or $68. Um, so it kind of served in many ways as this like revolving door for resources in the community. Um, you know, I think that like it ended up operating at this like really enormous scale, particularly once we were able to partner with this like black owned worker owned co-op um, that was able to sort of like acquire bulk groceries for us. Um, and it ended up, you know, supporting like 28,000 people in central Brooklyn um, with a week or more of groceries. So, you know, all, all, and uh, the other, like, what I think that that's the sort of most, um, that was a sort of most robust operation of Bedside Strong, but it also had a political education reading group, you know, there's like an abolitionist working group that works to support incarcerated or formerly incarcerated New Yorkers. Um, so it, it really is this like multifaceted um, group that is really built around the central belief that we all deserve dignity. We all like that. There's no one of us that does not deserve dignity, food, a roof over one's head. Um, and this, there's sort of this basic idea at play, I think both within Best Die Strong and especially within the novel that everyone has needs um, and everyone can help in some way. And there's something very powerful that happens when you communicate, when you connect um, a community's needs to that community's help. I think a lot of what all this could be different argues for is something more capacious than the everyone gets coupled up and married and finds their own, you know, picket fence and lives like as privatized a life as possible um, with a job that they're not secure in um, and just carves out a tiny fiefdom of the self. Um, I think a lot of what this novel is interested in fundamentally is interdependence um, and the ways in which it can yield a better relationship with ourselves, with the people around us and with the world. Um, ultimately, the novel argues, I think, that the world as it is, is a made thing and by that logic can be remade. And I think that 
kind of imagining and acting is important, whether it's in the creation of stories or novels, or whether it's in the creation of and participation within groups that imagine groups and organizations that imagine a different way of relating to each other. We'll put the Instagram handle in our show notes with a link so you can learn more about it. Um, I'm certainly inspired. I think that's a beautiful vision. And when it's in the, within your community, you're not just like donating to some, to a person who's, you know, also worthy and needs support, but is like outside of your network, but to focus where you are with what you have and what you can give, I think people can um, create that sense of community by getting involved in some way, like where they are. I love that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I think it just, there, there are many things that aren't working for people, right, about the way we live. And I think if you're, if you're, a, if you're someone who's experiencing precarity or poverty or just instability there are a ton of things that aren't working for you but even if you are someone who is doing pretty pretty well I think that your life is like if you're a decent person your life is full of like moral injury where you have to like you know like step over people who are unhoused on your way to the subway and I think that takes a toll on people I think that local like getting involved with locally organized efforts um to take care of the people around us i think is good for most people's soul i've i've not i've not heard too many negative reviews you know of people once they've gotten involved um and felt a deeper a, like a deeper connection to their community and you know in some ways like part of a cure for the alienation that um many modern systems and racial capital you sort of bequeaths to us. Yeah, I think in such an individualistic society, like caring for people in your community that you see just makes you feel like you said more grounded and connected to those people, which I think can help. And I love when books allow us to kind of imagine maybe more than we would allow ourselves to in real life, like what the world could be or what it could look like which reminds me a lot of reading The Transition Baby as well. Like, what could this look like if we thought about what parenting means? And this is kind of doing the same thing, but like, what does it look like to live in in true community with other people? And I also liked that it wasn't, you know, Tig struggles a lot when Sneha comes home and she's like, this is hard. Like, there are things here that are hard. It's difficult when we're arguing or when we don't have the money or when we have different needs that aren't being met. And so it allows you to kind of work through some of those problems, but in fiction, which I think is like a good first step to figuring out how do we work through them in the real world too. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's so important to be honest, you know, I mean, I think that one thing that um, I wondered about and had doubts about was whether um, the book as a whole, and even, even with the caveats, um, you know, where Tig is like, Oh, it's really hard, um, but it's worth it. Um, I wondered if the book ended up to rose colored glasses um, about, you know, about community writ large, because it is hard. Like community is to me, you know, not necessarily this like value in and of itself. It's all about the execution, right? There are bad communities. Sneha is in many ways failed by her community of origin, which is like part of why she doesn't necessarily imagine a future um, reconnected to them. Um, I, I think it was a good balance of we can see Tig's vision and what they were imagining for this beautiful project 
and also it's very predictable because we know these characters we know tom's gonna be there and he's a whole you know bear of a guy who's got all these opinions that he likes to spew at people and you can just see already where diana's gonna take on too much of the cooking because she's a great cook and she's motherly and wants to help everybody and I'm dead. You're so right. It's it, it, I, That's something I hadn't thought about, the degree to which like we as readers can sort of draw our own conclusions and c- conclude rightly that this little nest, loving nest of folks is going to end up okay, probably. Yeah. And I think Tig is such a visionary of coming up with this idea and almost like speaking it into existence by getting all these people involved. So I believe in their vision and their ability to recruit people that I think it'll work out in some way. We've read a lot of coming of age stories, but I loved how this one really focused specifically on that time after college where most books assume or most media has assumed we've already figured it all out. Um, But this book really focuses on that time where you're still really young, you're sort of expected to be an adult, but we are still really trying to figure out who we are. And this is coming from the perspective of a young queer immigrant. Um, why did you want to write about this particular time in Sneha's life? And, you know, what do you think about this transition time that many of us have experienced? That's such a beautiful question. I think that the novel is both a coming-of-age novel and an attempt to undermine some things about the most traditional version of the coming-of-age novel. Um, and in some ways it does this explicitly. <laughs> That's what, you know, some of the dialogue about Goethe and, you know, the original Big Daddy building, Buildings Roman, um, Willem Meister's Apprenticeship is about. Um, where you, you sort of see, I think, you know, even Sneha, who's not necessarily a writer or an intellectual thinking about this, um, you know, this fact that the Western conception of coming of age on average, really thinks of youth as this period of latitude, of freedom, of rebellion, but it's bookended um, and foreclosed by this um, period of like, okay, you know, you've sown your wild oats and now it is time to, you know, really pick up responsibility um, and responsibility for recreating society as it currently exists. So there's like a conservatism, um, you know, baked in, um, baked into the great concept of coming of age because, you know, we what we're talking about is coming of age into something, um, into society, into a world. And that world and society is always imagined as static. And so I think that ultimately all this could be different sort of is focused and invested on that period right after college because that is truly your, you know, your entry into the workforce is um, where you experience so many of the like flattening um, and coercive pressures of adulthood and coming of age into a society. Um, you you know you're no longer in undergrad. You're no longer like able to sort of only sustain yourself living the life of the mind or hooking up or like you know whatever it is um, uh, you know undergraduate students do or choose to do. Um, But all of a sudden, you're responsible for bills, you're responsible for rent. If you're like Sneha, you have to support other people besides just yourself. And you're you're suddenly given a bunch of tracks that if you kind of follow one foot after the other, you can you just end up, you know, 
like recreating yeah like bourgeois life um and so i kind of wanted to sort of set somebody who i hoped would be flawed but compelling you know worth following along with on those tracks and watch her come off of them and and have and you know i don't i don't believe that every reader needs to go like join a commune or form a commune as much as i really want people to um think about the bonds in their lives and think about themselves and the people and the people around them as units of power i think a lot of coming of age stories like we had talked about focus on like the younger teenage years and this period you know like you're 15 or your late teenagers like you're really trying to figure out who you are as a person and I think we kind of forget that that really happens like all through your 20s in this time when you're supposed to like have it already figured out um, and just fall into whichever one of those tracks is closest to yours and then you've you've arrived you've accomplished it now you're an adult and then it just feels like you're supposed to have it all together so I loved this kind of story of her trying to fit in, trying to like meet the status quo and at the same time being like, this is not going to work for me and then figuring out how to get out of it. But a lot of that is like messy, right? She's not like saying that or thinking through like, this is the status quo and I'd love to challenge it. She's just like falling apart and like doing it, you know, organically, I guess. <laughs> I love, yeah, I love, I love how you put it. I think that's totally true. Um, you know, this is someone who like life shows her the way and her relationships show her the way she's not somebody who has like a grand vision, um, unlike Tig. And I found, I found that compelling too, you know, um, I wanted to try to create a certain kind of very specific every man. Okay. I have one question that I'm just going to add because it's been bugging me. What was Amy's deal? Like, what? why was she the way she was? Do you have any insight into Amy or why she was so unempathetic and really kind of um, aggressive? Terrible. Yeah. Well, you know, I've met many Amys. Um, I think that while the book doesn't make its subject matter whiteness, um, Wisconsin is, you know, like a majority white place. And I thought it was important to show sort of a range of characters and how they, um, how they live within their whiteness. You have Tom, you know, as like one example, um, someone who uh, Sneha is so close to, um, you know, someone who is, I think, kind of contending with his life and like trying to live the best life he can, you know, even though he has like a bunch of um, structural privilege. But I think you also have Amy's in the world. You have people who, and one thing to keep in mind too, is like the book really doesn't make a ton of space for this because at the end of the day, it's not 600 pages long. Um, but I think that there is a little bit of evidence. You see Amy at the concert, you get them, she has friends, she has a fiance. Like, I'm sure that there are people who think that she's great, you know? Like, she has, like, a fun haircut and goes to, like, hip concerts or whatever. Like, um, but ultimately, she has this position of power over somebody, and it's somebody she doesn't like. Um, I think it's like, part of it is just, frankly, dislike. Um, there's something about Sneha that rubs her the wrong way. I think there's a race-based element to it. 
um, probably, but there's also possibly like jealousy. This is like a young, like, you know, a young queer person, like bringing, bringing home women, like, you know, just there, there are ways in which we're not given access to like everything about Amy because this isn't Amy's story ultimately. Um, but I think it's really important for people to not live in innocence about how other people can be, you know, particularly people with structural power. Um, you know, like I, I don't know. I was talking to my neighbor, um, who lives, um, one floor above me, uh, yesterday on the stairs and he was telling, and I had seen a memorial like outside our house, um, and with a bunch of candles and flowers and I was like hey is everything okay is it your grandma and he was like no like my sister was shot and he told me you know over the course of this conversation where he was um talking about his sister um that our landlord has been trying to raise the rent on him you know by like fifteen hundred dollars like that's the sort of stuff that happens a lot um you know and and it is in some ways by design that these things don't end up in our literature, don't end up in our films. Um, you know, we're, th- we're, we're taught to think of romance and conflict, um, you know, like relational conflict between people who have just as much money as they need and more as the drivers of plot, you know, like the marriage plot is one of the most like powerful novel plots and longstanding novel plots there is. But these things like my neighbor who will have to move out in a couple of months because there's no way he can afford that, you know, the rent that's being proposed. Like these things also drive the plot lines of um, people's lives. And I would be shocked if there was not some degree of racial calculus um, at play um, with my landlord because my upstairs neighbor is black, you know? And so, and I live in a gentrifying neighborhood and I think that it's, you know, my landlord is is pretty confident that he will be able to get like you know a wealthy a wealthy couple in my in my neighbor's place so it's a long-winded answer but it's kind of like yeah i don't know amy's both very nasty and i can also envision a story being written where she's the main character and we you know like truly like i can imagine sneha in that story you know and and like that's what literature can give us right like a sense of the like our a sense of our choices around point of view and who's prioritized. What a what a way to end! Oh my god. Seriously, I just say it's so interesting to think about it written from Amy's side of the story. Like I think about people I know who are. If you read one point of view, you'd be like that's a terrible person, and maybe that's objectively true. But then also you're like, people in their life who may not see them from the perspective that I am seeing them may have a fully different view. They you know they're making they're engaged to somebody who clearly thinks they're great, right? They have kids who probably like them. So you're like, this is so interesting that this is like a fully different perspective. I wonder what they would think of it if they had this experience that I'm having, but people are so nuanced in themselves and in how they interact and how they show up in different spaces and with different people. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, I I did have an Amy in my life um, around the same age. I lived in Milwaukee, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, the thing that I found interesting in fiction is like, you almost like, you can't write it all. Like, like if I put down every single interaction I had with the person who inspired the character of Amy, it would just come across as like unbelievable. So I think that's the, you know, 
that's a hard and complicated thing um and that we're we're working within traditions where you you know like that have their constraints it's also funny how I can't remember if it's Amy or her fiance where they keep saying we're nice people look we're nice people and you're like okay I think you don't have to say you're a nice person if you are actually nice or being empathetic in a situation but it's funny to think about how they view themselves because clearly they're like we're we're almost victims of this tyrant who's living us above us, like stomping around and cl- going through a depressive episode. Um, but but they can't get beyond that. That is the story that they're telling. Absolutely. You know, they're, I don't know. Um, it's, they want their lives to be so separate from everybody, you know, like everybody outside of like their friends, their kin, their choices. And a lot of what Sneha represents to them, I think is like, she's this intrusion, you know, she like, like they, they, like, they just don't want to deal with other people, which I think is like a strand of what conservatism, modern day conservatism is about. Um, It is like the unwillingness to share power with ev- with anyone who is not yourself or almost exactly like yourself and we see it displayed in in many ways including like anti-democratic you know full-on like you know attempts to like steal elections what else are you reading right now are there any other books you'd recommend to people who loved this book or just readers in general I'll rapid fire a couple. Um, If you're looking for novels of the modern office, I recommend um, The New Me by Hadley Butler. Um, Jillian, also by Hadley Butler, is great. Um, I've been reading um, a bunch of Joka Alharthi. For anyone who likes a more like experimental or avant-garde read, she is um, a writer from Oman, where I grew up. Um, I've been reading Patricia Highsmith, um, or rereading Patricia Highsmith, who did The Price of Salt, which became Carol, and The Talented Mr. Ripley, and a bunch of her, like, stuff, and she's so good. She's, like, an excellent fall read, so recommend her highly, especially for the girls' gays and days. All right, well, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. We love the book, and this made me love it even more. What a pleasure to talk to both of you. Katie, what have you been reading? When we record every week, I just feel always like I'm under accomplishing my reading goals because I'm like, what did I read in the last five days? Um, but I obviously finished this and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I started to read Honey and Spice and I did not like it. I just like, could not get into it. I was like, what is going on here? And I read 60 pages and I was like, I don't feel like this is a plot that I'm into. I also just read a book about like the hot guy that, you know, the girl's like, I could never like him. And then of course, you know, they're going to fall in love. So I think I just couldn't do the same trope again. Did you start reading that as well? I did start reading it and I did enjoy it. I think differently to you, I've been reading really intense books. So it was nice to read or to start reading more of a fun, lighthearted book. Um, we'll see. I'm liking it so far. I think I'm also like 60 pages in, so I'll just keep you posted as I go. All right. Let me know if it's worth it. I also started reading The Midnight Library. I bought this book like forever ago, maybe a year ago, and I started reading it and I was like, this is not for me. I immediately put it down. I read like 20 pages and I was like, I don't like it. I think 
that a lot of times your feelings on a book or my feelings on a book are very dependent on kind of like the state of life I'm in or what my mood is on that day or that week. I picked it back up this week and I'm loving it so far. I think it's a really good, there's a lot of really good lessons that this main character is learning, you know, about the impact of your decisions and the fact that you can make decisions, but you can't choose outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of really powerful messages inside of it. It's also a really short, easy, fast read. So I'm loving it so far. I feel like I've seen that cover everywhere. Same. I wasn't going to pick it up again, but two of my good friends read it and were like, oh, we loved this book. And I was like, interesting. So I was like, I got to try again. I also haven't finished the book. And of course, all my library holds are coming in. So I'm getting stressed by all the books that are like waiting for me to read them. I also have like, I just bought a couple of new books too. So I'm, I got to get through this book that I'm reading. I'm currently reading this book called Ill Will, and I'm just going to give you the basics of the plot, which is very overwhelming, which is <laughs> this man is a hypnotherapist, psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever, not a psychiatrist. And when he was a child, his parents and his aunt and uncle were murdered. Then him and his cousin basically have these repressed memories that it was like part of a satanic ritual type thing that his older adopted brother was the murderer. That is like part of the satanic panic that was happening. He eventually gets his dissertation in these like so-called repressed memories. Now he's an adult dealing with a string of unsolved murders. And it's all about this idea of, like, what is reality? What do you know? What do you not know? How can, like, two things be true and not true at the same time? And he's sort of going insane. And that is, like, very basic level plot. There's so much else that's happening. And I am riveted. I am at the edge of my seat. I can't. I cannot figure out what's going to happen. It's either, like, a very specific character drama where, like, we're really in this fucked up family and like how they're dealing with this insane tragedy that cannot be explained Mm. um or there's like a wild twist that's coming so we'll see how did you hear about this ridiculous book this was a recommendation by emily st john mandel on another podcast so it's by dan Cohn. um i'll put the link she did an interview with ezra klein and it was really good because you know i love emily so i'll put the link for that interview in the show notes Emily and Ezra, your people. My people. So if she liked it, I'm like, this is really going somewhere. It's very creative the way it's told. And he has these really interesting chapters where he'll put like three different streams of text. And it's sort of like three things that are happening all at once in the sense of like doom and disconnecting from reality. It's it's good, but it's kind of a mind fuck. Yeah, I mean, that is how it feels with somebody listening to you describe this right now. Oof. It's crazy. All right. Now can I say I'll see you next week? I guess. Well, I'll see you next week. See you tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. (laughs) Damn it. I knew you had a better one just waiting for me to say something dumb like see you next week. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney, with production support from Dan White. Our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week.